where the internet is heading and how we'll all be affected. I'm going to concentrate on where that, how that applies in the case of news. Now, my interest in this stems from two reasons. First of all, I was on BBC News Online six months after it started and followed it for, was involved in 11 years figuring out how we do produce news on the internet, what the issues are, and how to think about it. And since I left to go into academia, I've also been thinking about this issue, this issue both from the point of view of how can news organizations survive financially, but I think more importantly, understanding how we consume and uh, produce news online. And as part of that, I was involved in this large multi-nation study with other computer scientists trying to understand exactly what news on the web, social news in social media particularly, looks like, how we'd analyze it, and to some extent, how we might approach verifying it. Big issues. But what I want to do tonight is step back, really, and look at this in a very long-term historical perspective. Uh, because I think, at the moment, I mean, there have been an awful lot of claims about how the internet's going to affect news. I think when I started in the 90s, these were very utopian. There was going to be a citizen journalist replacing us, the regular paid journalists. Everyone could consume news, whatever, they want, whatever news they wanted for free. Mainstream media wouldn't be necessary because everyone could just make their own blog. And direct democracy, some people thought, could replace political parties, so we could all just vote whatever we wanted. Do we want vote Brexit or not? Tomorrow we can change again. Now, what we've really had is this dystopian visions in the last uh, five years, I'd say, of very discouraging feeling about what's happening to news on the web. People now live, it's argued, in a filter bubble where they only get access to information that agrees with their own point of view. There's fake news everywhere online. And mainstream media now is threatened not by blogs, but by the fact that it's losing its advertising revenue to Facebook and Google. And again, the broad vision of this is that the public sphere, where you could all get together to debate politics, is disappearing. Now, I'm going to really challenge both these views and try to put this in a bit more perspective, looking at previous technological revolutions where the nature of news changed very profoundly. And the points I want to make is that Technology is always changing news. This isn't the first time. We've had two very big revolutions, the creation of mass market newspapers and broadcasting. The, the speed of change, in my view, means that there are future developments still to come. We've probably not reached the end of the digital revolution in news. But also, the other point I think that history teaches up is things don't just erase the past they incorporate it. So both of the other revolutions incorporate other elements that were there in news already, but modified them and changed them in order to uh, adopt to the new technologies. And I think the other thing we could see is that there is a pattern in each, each of these technological revolutions, how it happened, what timescale, what things were necessary for it. And also that that pattern, when you're talking about big, these big changes in news, really followed you know, the very major changes in social, political, economic order, i.e. the two industrial revolutions. So to me, the key issue in all this debate, which I think is really critical, is does the technology determine everything? Are we doomed to whatever the technology now of internet news will produce for society? Or, and I think this is what history shows us, is it a matter of path dependence? That is how new technology is used is actually dependent on the choices we make, political, economic, and regulatory choices made early on. I mean, I think the BBC versus the American Commercial Broadcasting Networks is a good example of how early decisions in the 1920s have lasted for 100 years. So let me go on now to what I'm going to talk about for most of this lecture, which is these two major revolutions in news, which I think Going in a historical perspective, perhaps we can just see just how big they were. It's kind of hard to remember now, in a way, without going back in history, how different things were before. And what I'm going to look at is the various dimensions of this change, how long it took for this technological revolution to work through, how predictable it was, did people know what was coming, how large a change there was in news. And then I want to look within news, what changed in terms of new roles for journalists, or what we might call news gathering, how people got the news, 
how it was produced, how it was distributed, how it was created, and who are the audiences for it. And all these things have changed massively in each of these other revolutions. So let's go back to the early history of news. Uh, so I'm starting with Gutenberg and the printing press. Luckily, for this lecture, it's going to be a bit shorter because we can skip the 200, first 250 years where we had Gutenberg where we didn't have any newspapers. Um, and that's because it was a very slow process to print a newspaper, and also it was quite hard to get any news. So what people had mainly, the, the use of printing was revolutionary because for the first time people could get information it could be distributed, and it was distributed in the vernacular, not in Latin. And pamphlets, rather newspapers for 250 years, were the most important printed media that people got news or information about. Um, and I think the most successful journalist of this period was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a prolific writer of pamphlets and religious tracts, which circulated widely in Europe and were very important, essentially, in... Uh, creating the Protestant church. These were written by him, distributed, and ordinary people could get something called chapbooks, which were sold in markets. So the people did have access to this, but it wasn't news. Where did news start? News start only started 250 years later in the coffee houses of London in the 1690s. Coffee houses became the great vogue in London, and all sorts of interesting people, uh, businessmen, politicians, wits, all gathered in coffee houses to discuss the events of the day. And at some point, people started posting either articles or news in the coffee houses that people would then talk about. And that led to essentially news sheets being circulated within London, which were producing or reproducing some of this discussion. Here's the first newspaper, the first daily newspaper that came out in Britain. Uh, in 1702, but you might not recognize it as the sort of newspaper we know now. For a start, the whole front page is basically an article stolen by another newspaper, the Vienna Journal, that's two weeks old, that basically gives us a list of all the generals in the Austrian army. Um, in those days, there was no copyright, so one of the key ways you could get news was just take it from somebody else, because... Uh, and. It was a four-page sheet that you could just print you know, one, one large sheet, which was you know, covered into four things. And the circulation was about 300. The reason, one reason why they had to copy everything was basically one person produced a newspaper. And this is perhaps the most famous person who was a newspaper publisher, Benjamin Franklin, the author of the, one of the authors of the American Declaration of Independence. He was the editor, publisher, writer, and distributor of his own newspaper. He had to do everything. Perhaps he had a young man who helped him with the printing. And interestingly, his publication, which didn't make any money, by the way, he made his money by something called Poor Richard's Almanac, which was a, a, a yearly uh, thing for farmers predicting the weather and having a lot of aphorisms. His paper not only did not make any money, it was closed down by the colonial authorities for advocating uh, the... Uh, revolt, taxation without representation, where American patriots, as we call them, dumped tea in the harbor in order to stop uh, British imposing new taxes on tea. But Franklin was important in the early history of the of newspaper because when he became postmaster general in the new American uh, government, he introduced cheap postage rates so that American newspapers could circulate very widely uh, to rural areas and really did promote democratic discussion very early on. De Tocqueville was one of the people who was very impressed by that. The story is a bit different in Britain. In Britain, the government was very worried about newspapers precisely because they thought they might be a bit subversive, um, stoking terrible things like the French Revolution and democracy. So the government basically very tightly controlled them. From the very beginning, there were very big taxes on newspapers, the government kind of had to license newspapers to allow them to print and could take that license away. And during the early stages of the Napoleonic Wars, that didn't seem to be enough, so they just decided to buy all the newspapers in the country. The going price was about 600 pounds per newspaper. You could either sell or be imprisoned, so most people sold. And indeed, subsidies of newspapers by political parties in Britain went on right through the 19th century. 
which is one reason, perhaps, why we still have a very political uh, press. And the other point about this era was if you really want up-to-date, accurate news, you got it somewhere else. Nathaniel Rothschild, who was a major financier, had his own news service based on Pigeon Post, which actually meant that he found out who won the Battle of Waterloo before anyone else, allowing him to buy up loads of government bonds before they went up in value in London. And he was uh, very upset when new technologies came along, particularly the telegraph, which meant that Reuters was now proposing that everybody on the stock market would get the same news at the same time. And he vigorously wrote to them to try to, he asked, they were asked, could you invest? He said, no, can you stop doing it? Now let's talk about the newspaper revolution. And in my view, this was the biggest change in newspapers. And this is where we see what we now think of as a newspaper being created. It did start, or a crucial part of it certainly, was changes in technology. That's the rotary press. So this meant that you could now produce a million copies of a newspaper a day instead of a few hundred. You had the linotype machine was how you set the type. So again, you could have much more type. It was movable. It was hot metal. It wasn't just you had to go and fiddle it on the machine. And you had other things like lithography, photography, where you could put you know, um, pictures. You had large headlines. You could make it much more attractive. And the mass circulation of news and the mass distribution of it meant that news was a lot more profitable. If you sold a million papers, that was a bit better than selling 300. But also, it meant you could sell them to advertisers, so that that was really the main source of revenue, not subscriptions. But there's also a big change in the technology of news gathering. News, people now could gather the news around the world instantly, and uh, that made a huge difference to what was in the paper. And as part of that, a new role emerged, actually the role of a reporter, a separate post, people who were in charge of gathering the news and many other posts as well. So the most revolutionary thing about this period in terms of news was the telegraph, what some people call the Victorian internet. Because you could now get instantaneous news that was transmitted by the wire services, as they were called, who had been set up by the newspapers. Um, and this could, you could get news not just in the UK or in Europe, but all around the world. By the 1880s, the cable uh, companies, uh, submarine cables spread so that you could actually get telegraph news from anywhere in the British Empire. And indeed, the wire services divided up the world. So the British Empire was Reuters, AP was America's, and the French and Germans also had their spheres of interest, what became AFP uh, and Wolf News. So it was a giant cartel which monopolized the news but made sure all newspapers got it before anyone else. And that's quite important if you want to have news having a lock on it. And of course, they had the copyright as opposed to this earlier period, which was another important part of it. And the other thing I really think is interesting is that there really weren't reporters in the way we think of it before the emergence of the mass newspaper. I mean, uh, journalists in the 19th century were very much looked down upon as people who didn't actually go out and interview people, but just made up the news. And the periodicals, particularly in Britain, were seen as much better, because at least there were sort of intelligent people writing for them. But this really changed when you had these big papers, which could afford large staffs. And what was called the new journalism was what we now think of as journalism, i.e. you actually go out and interview someone if you want to get information. Um, and of course, increasingly, the reporters were all became specialized. You had big newspapers, lots of sections. You had business reporters, sports reporters, arts, fashion, it divided up. And of course, you also had specialists, subs, editors, typesetters, and printers. But I think the most important thing, what truly emerged by the 1920s, was this idea that news should be objective, that it's not opinion, that there may be opinion columns, but news is something where you're trying to get the facts, and that journalism, therefore, was a profession, not something else. The other thing, of course, were there these distribution networks which again were pretty revolutionary for the time. That's, you know, we had newsstands and paper boys in the streets, but we also had far-flung means of doing it. In Britain, because we had railways, every town could get a daily newspaper from London. So in Britain, we really had a concentration of the London press rapidly beginning to dominate. In America, it was really on metropolitan areas. Um, so 
paper, there were only a few national newspapers. There still only are in America. That's a difference because of the size of the country. But distribution was very important because it created a new audience. So these new mass market papers, they were aimed at you know, the common man. The biggest innovation they had was comic strips. That really got people who were even illiterate to read. And you know, there, there were women sections, sections for kids, sections you know, about politics, everything. And this was to attract as wide a range of uh, uh, readers as possible so they'd get the biggest circulation. And in a way, what happened really is the morning news, newspapers became an appointment with the news. And in fact, in the 1950s in Britain, most people bought three or four newspapers a day and passed them on, huge readerships. And as you got bigger and bigger audiences, of course, you could afford to develop new contents, make things longer, color supplements. You know, so you just there was a huge expansion. And you got a bit of a split between the mass market and the, you know, the more traditional upmarket newspapers, although gradually everybody got bigger. But the other interesting thing I find about this period, I mean, we often now think a lot about investigative journalism, how important it is. Really, this mass market newspaper, despite all the other things it did, one of the things it did really launch was the birth of investigative journalism. Because these could be really, really big stories that grabs people's imagination. And in Britain, the person who really launched that was a guy named W.T. Stead, the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette. In the 1880s, he launched a series in darkest England, going into the slum areas of London to see what the life was. And uh, part of what he discovered was a white slavery ring, which uh, he called the tribute of the maidens. And this was a huge sensation and scandal in his newspaper to publish this sort of information. Um, on the other side of the Atlantic, Joseph Pulitzer, the editor of the New York World, one of the leading mass market tabloids, uh, also was interested in this kind of investigative journalism. And he sent a reporter, Nellie Bly, undercover, posing as a mental patient into one of the most notorious asylums in New York City on what's now Rikers Island. And she wrote a huge expose of just how bad the conditions were and got this asylum closed down. But at the same time we had investigative journalism, the creation of investigative journalism, we also had the creation of what in the US was called yellow journalism, which was a sort of jingoistic news to stir up popular emotions, particularly against foreigners and for war. One of the most famous examples of this is in the US where uh, there was a US battleship in Havana Harbor. The US and Spain were kind of on the verge of hostilities. The battleship blew up. The editor, the owner of the other tabloid paper William, in New York, William Randolph Hearst, was convinced that this was going to be a close of war, despite the fact that it turned out this battleship was not blown up by the Spanish, it was blown up by its own boilers. But he was, had an you know, incredibly intense campaign to forced the US to go to war with Spain as a result of this battleship with the cry, remember the Maine. And his famous quote is when his reporter on the scene said, well, this battleship wasn't blown up by the Spanish, he said, you just give me the pictures and I'll supply the war. We had a similar trend in the US. This is, we're talking about the 1920s when they had we, the two big mass market newspapers, not so different from today, with the Daily Mail, uh, Lord Rossmere created that, and the Daily Express, which was created by Beaverbrook. Both already had a circulation of over a million in 1920. And they were quite keen to throw off the shackles of being you know, the servants of politicians and basically try to tell politicians what to do. They had various campaigns in the 20s and 30s, including an attempt to end Britain's policy of free trade and a big attempt, quite successful, to introduce Britain's first austerity program, which was called the Gettys Acts in 1922, when the British government, partly because of the Daily Mail, was forced to agree to cut all public spending by 20%. But, of course, they weren't that popular with the politicians. And uh, Stanley Baldwin, who's later prime minister, said, uh, what the proprietors of these papers is aiming at is power, and power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot throughout the ages. Now I'm going to go on to broadcast, which again is thinking back on it, is an incredible revolution, something again that was completely revolutionary and completely unexpected. There's the BBC headquarters. 
I mean, broadcasting created a new, bigger, and different audience for news. People would be listening in their homes, along with listening to the music or talks or drama. And of course, the whole idea of live reporting and uh, the immediacy of news now was given another fill-up. I mean, newspapers you know, had late editions. They got on the street within a few hours after the news. But now you could turn on and listen to the news as it was happening. And once you started to get pictures, video, television, that added even more to that impact, particularly if you're talking about wars or disasters. And again, roles changed. What broadcast journalists did, how the news was structured, changed. But the interesting thing about radio was no one had the least idea that radio was going to be a broadcast medium. Radio was into, into, invented by Marconi to be a wireless telegraph or a wireless telephone system, point-to-point -point communication, one-to-one, -one, nothing to do with broadcast. And of course, the famous, that's Marconi, and the famous example was the Titanic was able to signal its distress by its uh, wireless radio before it sank. But by the 1920s, this began to change, and people spontaneously started getting wireless sets and also started broadcasting. And eventually, of course, networks were created, but very differently the way networks were created in the UK and the US, but both essentially required the government to intervene to sort of supervise the spectrum, the radio spectrum, because it was getting very crowded. Um, and again, you needed new technology, not just to broadcast, but now you needed a device to receive the news. I mean, you didn't need a Kindle to read the newspaper, but you did need a radio to listen to radio news. So that really made a big difference. Uh, so in fact, it was the radio manufacturers who were the driving force in creating uh, broadcast, indeed, in creating the BBC, uh, against the wishes of newspaper proprietors who didn't want a competitor. Um, and again, I think it's important to think about the way we listen to news being quite different, because if you're listening together, as typically quite a bit early on and even now, people sat together in one room and watched television, that, I think, gives a different character to the news. It sort of makes it you know, both more intimate and also, in a way, more collective consumption than it was when you just read a newspaper on your own in the office on a train. And, and I think that changed the character of it. And I mean, an example was, Franklin Roosevelt giving these fireside chats in the Depression. Very, very effective, because it was felt like he was there in the room with you telling you not to worry about the Depression. We've sorted out the banking system. You're all going to be you know, a bit better off. And that, I think, you know, was a different kind of power that you didn't really have with newspapers. And I think all the evidence is images are even more powerful. They have a bigger impact on people, especially if you're seeing things like the Vietnam War explosions or disasters. They're pretty powerful, even with the images you get in newspapers. Now, newspapers didn't just take radio news lying down. They actively tried to stop it. So the BBC, when it was set up, it was originally a company, not yet a public corporation, had to sign this agreement with all the news agencies owned by the newspapers, which said that the only source of news the BBC could have was one daily summary that the news agencies prepared for it. And the BBC would acknowledge the copyright and tell people that this was the source of all their news. And the BBC couldn't broadcast news during the, period, during the day when newspapers were sold. They had to wait till after people didn't want to buy the newspapers, because otherwise that would you know, ruin them commercially. I mean, gradually, under Lord Reith, the BBC kind of fought free of this. But in 1934, the BBC only established a news department in 1934. It had two editors and two reporters. So it actually took the war, World War II, to really, I think, for radio to make it a hugely important news source. And then it was absolutely critical. I mean, reporters, and it took a long while for reporters uh, on radio and then TV to become personalities in vision. Again, the BBC very much didn't want anyone to know who they were at first. Television, the BBC television news, also didn't have anyone in vision. It was like a movie town newsreel. It was only when ITV introduced uh, reporter, presenters in vision that you had a sort of you know, famous correspondence, famous newsreaders. Um, and I think that, I mean, it was, you know, it, some of them, the, by the 40s, people did quite, become quite famous. For example, Edward R. Murrow, who was a CBS News correspondent 
in London was famous for his live, res live broadcasts from London during the Blitz, which were very influential. So you had a different kind of first-person news now where you were present with that person observing what was going on. He was telling you the bombs are falling, but London is, is you know, surviving and fighting back. Again, I mean, there are real continuities in what happened between radio and broadcast. So broadcast you know, had initially very much thought of itself as radio with pictures. So the pictures, as I say, were like movie reels for news. But you know, many of the serials that were on radio became television programs as well in the early days. They were taken directly from radio and were just turned into television. And again, I think we had the same, at least initially, the same viewing habits that we had to buy a big, expensive bit of equipment that it took us a while to decide to buy. Perhaps in Britain, after the coronation was broadcast live, a lot of people did start buying it. And we all sat around and had a collective experience of you know, understanding the news. And of course, initially, there weren't that many channels or choices of the news. So we did, again, television, of course, create a whole bunch of new formats and new technologies. The most important thing was the outside broadcast, which is on the left, which is how television is able to show live pictures of the coronation, of parliament meeting, of major events. And the second big breakthrough was satellite technology. That's the first Telstar satellite, which allowed people to beam pictures across the Atlantic, live television pictures. So this added to the idea that we had immediacy, as did, more recently, the satellite dish, which meant that anywhere in the world you could send a reporter and send an uplink by satellite so you could be live. So John Simpson there during the Iraq war, again, more dramatic than if you had to send your uh, television news footage by plane and get it produced in New York, as happened during the Vietnam War. Broadcasting really, in some ways, changed politics more than I think than the internet did, and ways that, again, we need to think about. Um, I mean, this was where we really, especially when we got cable news and 24-hour news, this is where, basically, people had to talk in sound bites. There's a lot less space. 20 to 30 seconds was all we were going to put on as a television producer, I can say the we, no matter how much they rambled on or made very important points, because that was the only space you had in a 90-second bulletin. Uh, and with a 24-hour news cycle, you really couldn't choose when you were going to announce things, unless you were Theresa May, and that might not have worked. Um, and again, what it meant was you know, visuals, you know, what pictures you could show were absolutely critical. If you only had old library pictures of something, i.e. pictures that were taken a long time ago, it didn't make a very dramatic item. And again, now a live interview is very important, which of course was a bit scary for a lot of politicians. And you know, politicians really had to adjust to this different world. And you know, people who are good on t TV did a lot better than people who weren't as good as TV, as Richard Nixon or Gordon Brown both found out. And you did have more involvement of the crowd. You had Vox Pops who would go around and say, what do the ordinary people think of this? Um, so this is, again, you know, dramatic moment live when we discovered that the conservatives did not get a majority in the last election. Um, but thinking about, you know, on the one hand, we can find out things quicker. We get a lot more. On the other hand, we might get less depth, but also it's changed politics. And this is one famous example. This is the Nixon-Kennedy debate in 1960, where it's widely believed that Nixon, who was ahead in the polls, lost the debate because he didn't look very good on television and perhaps hadn't shaved. So that, in a very close election, that really was a turning point. And I mean, we've had television debates in the US ever since, and we've had some in Britain more recently as well. So now I'd like to go on to the third revolution in news, the emergence of online news. And so the question is, is this the end of the mass media? And maybe going back to the very early type of personalized media that we could all produce, or is this an evolution and a new development in mass media? And I think it's probably more of the latter, but that's one of the questions that we still don't know the answer to. So again, we have to think back 50 or 60 years to the technologies that had to be created before we could even think of having internet news. That's the first computer, the first um, 1946, ENIAC in the University of Pennsylvania. And that's the first model of Apple computer that uh, was developed by um, the company very early on. And the technological innovation we've had 
has really continued over the last 50 years. We've had set-top boxes and Wi-Fi, and we've had um, Apple iPhones, those are the first example. And all of these things were necessary before you could even think of having um, internet news. But actually, the biggest, the biggest technology that made internet news feasible was something that now you might not even think about, the browser. You couldn't really find news online when you couldn't find anything online. In 1994, Netscape, then called Mosaic, introduced the first browser. In 1995, the first company set up news services, among them the Daily Telegraph and CNN. And really, the story of online news is actually, again, the major media companies were the ones who set up the first and still the largest websites. That on the left is the BBC website, on the right that's CNN. And there, you know, had both the um, credibility and the investment to grow substantially. And the next thing that really, the other technology that again perhaps we maybe take for granted now was broadband. When you didn't have broadband, you had a 56K connection, you had news, but it was pretty slow. You couldn't really get pictures. You couldn't, definitely could not get video. So it was a lot more limited. And when you had your little old-style non-smartphones, we at the BBC really struggled to see how you could get any news on that. You could get one or two lines. So you know, having first broadband, then Wi-Fi, then smartphones, again, changed everything. But if you think about that, the last of those changes is only 10 years ago, the smartphone, 2007. So there could still be quite a few more things down the road that we don't know about. These are the top news websites. This is US figures only, monthly unique visitors. As you can see, there's only one that isn't an existing news organization. Yahoo and Google are what we call accumulator sites. They pool all the news from all sources, but mainly they will take from the major news providers. And interestingly, two of those 10 are UK sites, the Mail and the Guardian, just knocking the BBC out this time to number 12. So you do get news from all around the world, but you mainly get it from the people who've always done the news um, on, in terms of internet news. So what has changed about digital news? Well, there is a much lower cost of entry because you can produce, can create a website a lot more cheaply than creating a broadcasting station or a newspaper printing plant. And you, know, you can have your own bespoke content production system pretty easily, which gives you all the bells and whistles you need now to create this. I mean, we started at the BBC. We didn't have that. We were doing everything uh, by hand in a bespoke way, which is very tedious and elaborate. But now, basically, it's all set up for you. I mean, the public can become reporters and, more importantly, sources of news. We now have a lot of people writing in when they're disasters or sending their pictures or videos, which is very important. And of course, I mean, basically, the mainstream news organizations had to really adapt to the new world. Newspapers now are putting a lot of emphasis on doing videos online. And of course, broadcasters, like the BBC, had to understand how to do text. And they really didn't have a clue when we started. The, BBC website, their first suggestion was, why don't you just take all our radio scripts and put them on verbatim up on the website? And that was abandoned fairly quickly. I mean, I, I tried editing a few of them, and it was obvious that doesn't at all work. So you had to really think this through. And that was, uh, you know, it is quite a you know, different process of creating uh, online news. But I think the biggest difference for online news is the question of the distribution system. That's where we've really had some revolutionary changes. We now have this global audience for news. As you've seen, two of the top 10 sites in the US are news created in the UK. And you know, again, you have immediate real-time access to all the news, and you can immediately respond if you want or send in your pictures. So we have really shrunk the time between news happening and news uh, um, appearing. And again, you have all this extra resource if you want it. In-depth reports, you have a lot more space to write things on the web if you want. Documents, graphics, you know, videos, fun devices to make you understand the news better, which I tried to sometimes invent to explain the finan global financial crisis, which was a challenge. Um, and of course, now, how do you find the news? You don't just go to the BBC News website, CNN's website, Fox News website. People equally find it by searching for news on Google or through social media. So we have different ways of discovering the news, which has changed a lot. 
And of course, I mean, the other thing is, you know, with newspapers, the more you print it, the more it costs. On the internet, one person reads it or a million people read it, it's the same cost. So again, in that way, you know, it's changed the economics. But even when we were thinking about how to do news online, a lot of it in the end comes from reimagining things which are already in news. I mean, one of the first things that struck us at the BBC was essentially you have to write very short tabloid-like headlines because people's attention span reading online news is quite short. So if you write a very long kind of radio script type introduction, no one will read it. So tabloids was actually one model for how to write news online. And again, you know, all this visual content, actually, if you think about it, newspapers and television, increasingly, they found that very important. A giant picture in the front of your newspaper makes a huge impact. And, you know, video, when we finally found out how to do it once we had broadband, for example, with the iPlayer, also makes a big impact. Although, again, the evidence is people don't want to watch very long videos online. A clip might be enough. And again, all the other things we did, we invented new techniques of doing this, but essentially we were you know, taking graphics that were in TV and newspapers, making them more elaborate, animating them, making them bigger, you could play with them, but it was similar. And even when you think about the public interaction, I mean, we did have letters, pages, and vox pops already, we could have more of it online. But again, the evidence was not that many people do want to comment on the story, and even fewer want to create one. And again, we th thought of how to do different sections, how to navigate between different bits. But you know, newspapers had an interesting way of doing that. They had different sections, so you could figure out where to go as well. So you know, we're trying to find the analogies from news that already existed in some ways, is what I'm saying. So how did the economics of news change in the digital era? Well, as I said, the most important thing was that newspapers, in particular, depended on advertising for the, much more than subscriptions. And now, in the digital world, all the revenues from advertising are essentially being captured by Google and Facebook, who get 80% of all advertising. And so basically, you know, they get to your news, people get to your news through Google and Facebook more, but Google and Facebook capture the data and capture the ads, and you get a lot less revenue from the ads, unless you're the FT, where you have a very exclusive group of rich readers who advertisers would like to read separately. And again, you lose control over distribution. I mean, the rules that Facebook created on news feeds dramatically changed how much people would view, for example, the New York Times. And when Facebook made a recent change, viewers for all major publications suddenly dropped. So you're in the hands of somebody else. Um, I mean, the thing about uh, news online, though, is there's something called the network effect, which is, you know, if you are like any other search in Google, if you already search quite a bit, you'll be searched and go on to more. So essentially, you know, this was a huge advantage for the big brands. So actually, we have a concentration where the biggest news brands, BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, became even bigger online relative to the smaller newspapers who really got squeezed out. So that's what I'm calling the brand effect, because also there's a, if there's an issue of trust, you might feel that you'd believe the New York Times, the BBC, or in America, if you're of that inclination, Fox News, rather than somebody you've never heard of. And the aggregator sites, I mean, again, a lot of people go through these other sites. They're also, Apple's now also doing it. They're also de dependent, really. They don't produce their own news. So they are still, you know, dependent on those organizations still have enough money to produce news. And, you know, we're yet to see whether subscriptions for online news will actually help make change this equation. Some newspapers, like the Financial Times, are doing it. Some, like the Guardian, through a combination of subscriptions and donations, essentially, have made some headway. But it's still an unknown question. When so much news is free, how many people will pay for it? At the moment, the evidence it might be between 5 and 10%, which probably isn't quite enough to sustain uh, news in the long run. I mean, the new entrants had a different problem. On the one hand, they could create content very cheaply. Huffington Post started by just having its own contributors. They didn't pay them anything. If you want to talk about something, you know about it, you can put up essentially a kind of blog on Huffington Post. That has evolved. They don't do that anymore. But because, you know, you got quite a variable amount of content. So that's changed. I mean, again, there's, there are all sorts of techniques. New sites like BuzzFeed have clickbait, which is basically 10 things you didn't know about the internet. Click here to make people stay on sites longer. Because 
in terms of internet news, people are very concerned not just if you go to the site, but how long you view it for. And that's what advertisers want to know, and, and everyone wants to know is the time on the site. And it's still quite clear that people spend a lot less time reading news on the internet than they did either watching it on television or reading it in newspapers. So if you look at how many times people look at news online, that number is very big compared to television or newspapers. But if you actually measure how much time they've spent reading the news, the equation is a bit different. I mean, the other thing is that you know these small sites can rise and fall quite quickly. I mean, Breitbart News kind of came from nowhere with Steve Bannon to become quite a significant thing. Infowars, there are all sorts of sites, but they don't necessarily have the staying power because you could, because you could keep creating them. It might move on, and there's another right-wing site or another left-wing site. So, you know, it's still a bit unstable. The new entrance, as I said, only Huffington Post has managed to consolidate itself. So how do we consume news online, and how has it changed? Well, it is quite striking that young people basically look at the news online, and old people look at it on television still. These are, by the way, worldwide surveys. This is a figure combining the Reuters Digital News Survey, which uh, surveyed digital news use in 40 countries, Europe, the US, and a number of other countries around the world. So this is a consolidated figure. Newspapers would be higher if you just took Europe or the US and the UK than these figures. But I think what's striking, again, and you know, young people use social media, old people don't. But when you ask the question of this whole group, do you just rely on social media? Only 2% wouldn't look at anything else and just think it's great, we could get all our news from social media, they'll tell us everything we want to do. So there's more skepticism in the public than perhaps we think when we worry about fake news, and here's some evidence of that. So there has been a general decline in the trust in news, as there's been a decline in our trust in our institutions, our, politi our politicians, our businessmen, and uh, many other areas. So the, the latest figure was, it, when we asked people, did you, did you trust the news you actually heard? About half said, yes, we trusted it. But people thought other news they didn't watch was less reliable. 44% only said that news in general was reliable. But what's striking, again, is you know, people were quite skeptical. If you didn't go to the main news site, how could you, would you really trust the, social, the news through search? Only a third thought so, and only a quarter said they trust news on social media. So people might view it, but you know, that doesn't mean they trust it and always fall for it. So I mean, indeed, half of the survey said they were very worried about fake news. And, how we should deal with that. So I mean, there's a big awareness of this. It's certainly an important issue, but it's not one which you know, the public doesn't think about as well. So I'd just like to draw now some of the lessons I think uh, uh, come from this. So the problem of what the role of the press or the media is is a really important one in democracy. Um, and this is some of the things that we might worry about. Um, the interesting thing, though, it's not this worry isn't new. This is a publication in 1938, which was evaluating the state of the British press uh, and uh, drawing some really worrying lessons about what might be going on and how our democracy might be threatened. I think thinking about trusting the news in historical perspective, we have to remember that the news was never completely trusted. In the 19th century, newspapers were subsidized by governments. And as I said, journalists weren't thought of very highly. In, the, in America, newspapers and in Britain with Cruikshank, newspapers made scurrilous attacks on politicians, on the royalty. And indeed, it was so bad that the first US government passed an Alien Sedition Act to basically abrogate the First Amendment and ban any newspaper which criticized the government on the grounds of that it was sedition and treason. Luckily, Jefferson came in and said, actually, I think I do believe in the freedom of the press. And I mean, as I saw in, in the 20th century, we had yellow journalism, jingoism, and indeed, during wartime, we had really, uh, you know, even for the BBC and Reuters, I mean, very much news that was controlled by the government in both world wars. And of course, you know, we had, um, you know, propaganda broadcasts of radio uh, by totalitarian regimes as well. So we haven't had a smooth sailing of trust in news. It wasn't like... We used to, it used to be wonderful, and now it's terrible. And I think the other interesting thing for me is this idea of what I call a moral panic, 
We've always worried that new technologies are going to ruin our society, starting with the novel, which many people, particularly men, thought would ruin marriage because women would get the wrong sort of idea about what marriage was about, and it might involve romance and love. Um, <laughs> celebrity reporting was also considered very bad because all these celebrities were pretty immoral in what they got up to. And telephones also threatened the social order because people, young people could make dates without their parents meeting the man they were going to go out with. And crime reporting, which again was another big theme, was also considered, you know, encouraging people to be criminals. And I mean, it, it continued in the 20th century. I think, the thing, one of the things most amazed me, in the 1950s, a leading psychologist testified to Congress that the causes of juvenile delinquency, which were considered a terrible curse in the 50s, if you think of rebel without a cause, was caused by comic books. That's how people got the wrong ideas, you know, just like Punch and Judy, that was it. And radio propaganda, people believed really that once people heard Hitler once, that was it. They were converted. I mean, it was obviously a bit more complex. And I mean, musicians opposed radio. They thought they'd never be able to sell a record again. So we have a lot of uh, myths or moral panics that didn't prove to be that true in the end, or at least our mores actually did change. So what are the big lessons of history? Well, first of all, the changes we're talking about are very big, and they take a very long time. As I said, we were talking about hundreds of years to get to the kind of newspapers we think of now as newspapers by the, around 1900. And again, broadcasting. I mean, if you remember people really with Maxwell and Hertz, it was you know, in the middle of the 1800s where we first understood what this technology was. It took us quite a while to understand what it would be used for and you know, to develop it from radio into television and all the different technologies that we now can deploy. So, as I said, same story with digital news. It's taken us, um, you know, 60 or 70 years of technological innovation to get where we are now. We could still have more. And these, these changes do parallel deeper changes in the economy. So the mass market newspaper was really a product of the age of steam and steel and coal and the broadcast revolution really paralleled the rise of this, what's called the second industrial revolution, petrol engines, electricity, and all these things which are really necessary for that to be realized. And also, when you think about it, there were many preconditions in these industrial revolutions which had to happen before you could have mass market newspapers. People had to know how to read, which in Britain, really, the education system wasn't a mass education system until the 1880s, 1840s in the US. You needed big urbanization, big cities are where mass newspapers really started again in the late 19th century. You had new means of distribution, which didn't exist. I mean, the newspapers in the 1700s were sent by stagecoach, so didn't get them that soon if you were in a city like Birmingham. And you needed a new corporate system where there were big companies, national companies, who wanted to advertise and needed to advertise. And again, with broadcasting, I mean, you know, you need certain basics. You need to have electricity. You needed to have you know, electronic equipment, you know, radio tubes, and new sorts of manufacturing, ultimately, uh, you know, television. And the other key thing with broadcast is it really did depend on regulation. This is why I was saying about the difference between the BBC and the US commercial networks is you couldn't really just have spectrum because once you just said everybody can just have a radio set and broadcast everyone else, Basically, everybody was overlapping everyone else's spectrum. I mean, this was what happened in the US in the 1920s. Small groups, churches, trade unions, education associations all put out their own news. But in the end, the US government stepped in and said, no, we're going to have one standard. We're going to, people have to get licenses from the government, and we're going to give the licenses to the rich, big commercial radio stations that can reach everyone. And that made commercial radio feasible in the US. In Britain, we also said, we can't have all this chaos will let the government do it. So very different choices. I mean, as I am saying, the state has always had to regulate networks. So it wasn't just broadcast, but the telegraph was also the key technology that had to be regulated. But again, a very different path in the US and the UK. The UK nationalized the telegraph system, which had been originally created in private hands and created the post office tele, uh, telegraph and telephone system. So all of it was in the hands of the government. The US did. The US wanted competition. 
among private companies, but in the end what they got was one monopoly, Western Union, which developed the uh, telegraph, and then they got another monopoly, AT&T Bell Telephone, which developed the telephone, because these technologies really, you know, there's no point having two parallel telephone systems in the country, just one will be enough. And because of that, you know, there have to be in some way, they will be regulated. They're sort of natural monopolies in that sense. I mean, we're still looking at this issue of how to regulate networks in the internet age. I mean, net neutrality is a big issue. That is, should companies be allowed to, big companies have preference in sending their streaming videos like Netflix ahead of anyone else who wants to get access to the internet. Um, and, you know, how do we regulate fake news and social media publishers? How do we look for biases? These are big questions where we haven't really got the answers to. Now, my conclusion is really this. Predicting the unpredictable. No one could predict how these technologies are going to affect news. Uh, news in Britain originally was basically kind of very much like stock market reporting. Radio was a point-to-point -point communication. And news really didn't, you know, it took a while for news to sink into the ecology of broadcasting. But again, things aren't just completely revolutionary. Things carry on in different formats in each revolution, which I think is something we need to remember. It's both a revolution and an evolution. So what, we, what do we know from history? That it will take a long time for this technology to fully work out. And in my view, we don't yet be sure that it has worked out in terms of internet news. We do know that it's highly unlikely we can actually predict exactly how it's going to work out. We do know that it's going to incorporate a lot of existing elements. It's not going to be, we're not going to abolish news. And there are preconditions. Pre this doesn't just happen at random. It happens when there's a bigger change in society. Like now, you know, the digital revolution affects a lot of areas, perhaps not as much as the two industrial revolutions. And what we can't know, and in a way, I think the most important lesson in this history is what we cannot know rather than what we can predict. So we can't really know how long this change will take, and we can't know exactly how it will change. And it's difficult to see in advance what the social effects will be, whether it is ruining you know, life for children in a way that the telephone turned out didn't. Um, but the key thing is that what choices we make now will really determine the path that new news technologies follow. This was my earlier point about path dependence. It's not automatic that the technology will be applied in a certain way. In a sense, it's up to us. And I think that's an optimistic note to end on. We as a society still have the choice to develop how we want online news to develop. And I hope we can realize that we have that power and use it to make wise choices in the future. Thank you very much.